So let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, as we continue our study in life in the garden before the fall, and a study of God's open-handed generosity to our first parents. As we continue to study, we'll see tonight his provision of Eve for Adam and God's creation of the good gift of marriage. At this point, up till now in Genesis, we've seen that God created an idyllic world as it was made to function with God's people in God's place under God's rule. It was a, it was a world where everything worked as it was supposed to work. And as we've seen, God's been incredibly generous. He, he made Adam and he didn't have to do that. And he placed him in, a, in, a, in the garden of luxury with uh, delicious food to eat and trees that were beautiful to the sight and a delight to the eyes and a plethora of natural resources. And God says, come and enjoy life in your father's kingdom and rule with me over it. That's what God does. And the culminating blessing. To Adam in that garden is the gift of Eve to share that glorious life with. She's the crowning blessing in a perfect world before the fall into sin. And and so, my friends, as we come to this chapter and consider that, we might remember what happens in the very next chapter. It's in Genesis 3. Unsurprisingly, we might say, that Satan... The adversary and the enemy chooses this relationship as his first point of attack. He seeks to destroy this first couple. He seeks to destroy and ruin their relationship with God, of course, but also to pit husband against wife and wife against husband. And how often in marriages today are there not two people helping one another before the face of God, but two people rather at war with one another. And in that sense, doing the very thing the enemy of your soul wants you to do. And so it's a sober thing to consider God's good gift of marriage because Satan seeks our destruction in part through it But God seeks our blessing. So let me consider with you and have you consider God's words about marriage from Genesis chapter 2 beginning at verse 18 through verse 25. Hear now the word of God. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts tonight. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we pray that you would show us your glory and your grand design and that you would teach us and instruct us and that you would hold Jesus even before us and encourage us, help us. We, we need your help tonight. Be gracious to us for Jesus' sake. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Why did God provide Eve for Adam? And how does she help him? And what is marriage? Those are the three things I want you to think about tonight with me. And at verse 18, we see immediately that God does provide for Adam because he needs her, right? Why did God provide a wife for Adam? God made us for relationships. Verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone, even in paradise. It was not good. Adam needed a companion, friends. Adam and Eve are married on the sixth day. We know that. Uh, The sixth day of creation is when God made male and female. And we know that because on the sixth day of creation, he made them. At the end of the sixth day, all was very good. But it was to up to this point, not yet all very good. Not yet as good as it needed to be until Eve would accompany Adam in the journey of life before the face of God. And so only after God created male and female and brought them together as husband and wife was it very good. From the beginning, we learn we are made for relationship, for meaningful, long-lasting, intimate relationship with other human beings talk about marriage directly in a moment but we are designed to live in community we're social creatures and that's no wonder when you consider the kind of God who made us God himself is a relationship he lives in community has always done so when when we talk about God we're talking about a being who is father son and holy spirit eternally existing in loving relationship Within himself. And we who are made in his image are designed to share life with others. And we don't thrive if we're isolated and alone and all on our own. We don't thrive that way. And God knew that about us. And so what did God do? Well, in the first place in verses 19 through 20, God needed to convince Adam that he needed Eve. And God revealed to him his need there in verses 19 and 20. 20. How did he do that? Well, it tells us that a suitable helper was not yet found for him. And so God brings forth out of the ground all these animals and puts on a parade 
we might say. Two by two, God brings the animals to Adam. And so here comes Mr. and Mrs. Elephant. And then here comes Mr. and Mrs. Platypus. And over time, as Adam does the work that he's called to do in ruling, he names the animals, he exercises his authority over them. But over time, they continue to appear, male and female. And Adam Adam begins to figure it out, that no suitable helper has yet been found for him. And he sees that. He needed to know that he needed Eve. And God wanted him to know that he needed Eve before she was provided. And that nothing else could be for him what only she could be to him. So let me apply that for a few moments. I want to suggest, friends, that a man isn't ready for marriage until he sees his own need. And as long as you're too proud to say that you need her, you aren't ready to be married to her. Part of maturing and growing up is owning your own neediness. And we should also, friends, learn from this that we ought to beware the danger of of cheap substitutes. And in our culture, it's increasingly common for there to be the cheapest of substitutes available for people. We could speak here of the very common an increasingly common role of pornography in substituting for a real substantial person in the life of men in our culture. And instant gratification in isolation, substituting for the abiding intimacy in communing with another person that God designed for marriage. We might also recognize, friends, uh, the temporary environment of living at home as a child and the temporary environment of a university dorm where we live in a house full of people in intense proximity to others. But the danger of that being a substitute in our thinking for the permanent relationship of a committed marriage. Now, relationships in a dorm can be fabulous. They are a good good gift. Roommates can be a good gift. Now, my initial roommate was a pyromaniac. Freshman year in college, potluck roommate. He was, he was pouring rubber cement down the middle of the room with my back turned at my desk and lighting it on fire. And one day I, I, I heard the sound of rushing wind and he had taken a, a blanket and was beating back the flames. And it was crazy. He was also reading Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible um, uh, while I was uh, just the very other side of the room reading God's Holy Bible. Uh, We were an interesting match. Um, Now, I realize uh, not everybody's roommate experience is is like mine. He was a nice enough guy. But, um, But roommates are temporary. And it's not surprising if your heart longs for more. And it's not wrong to be looking for a spouse, for a permanent, lifelong friend. And so God showed the man he needed the woman. And then God met his need for the woman. God provided for him. He doesn't say, Adam, you need a wife. Go out and find one. 
he makes one for him. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of a father providing for his son just exactly what his son needs. And I'm not suggesting, dads, that we, uh, we scour the world, you know, and pay the dowry and bring a woman home and say, son, this one is yours. I'm not suggesting that's the conclusion we should draw. But the good heavenly father knew exactly what his own son needed. And provided just exactly what he needed. And God can be trusted to provide for you. Are you questioning his providence in your experience? Are you pining with discontent? Are, are you now trusting him for that future introduction? Why not be praying now for the person that you may not even yet have met? And why not be looking to the Father for that good gift? It's not too early to start praying, friends. And so God puts the man into a deep sleep because he's going to provide this one for him. Puts him into a deep sleep and takes from him a rib, the text says, and fashions the woman. Clearly, she is not evolved from chimpanzees. She is not some pre-existing hominid that God selects and turns into a human so Adam and she can make more evolved forms of humans or animals called humans. That's not what's happening here. She is made from him and is neither more nor less evolved than him because neither is evolved. He's from the dust of the earth and she's made of the rib of Adam. And you cannot get chimpanzees from those words. It's a glorious thing. God provides Eve for Adam. And as Matthew Henry once put it, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart. To be beloved. Now that is beautiful theology, friends, and it is true. And we see the Father providing a beloved companion and friend for Adam, and He puts them together to meet their relational needs. That's why God made her for Him. And how does she help Him? Is our second question. How does she help? God designed Eve to be a helper fit or suitable for Adam. Look again at the language of verse 18. Uh, It was not good that he should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And again at verse 20, after all the animals have come by and none there are found who are a helper fit for him. This tells you then her role and her dignity, friends. She's a helper and she's a helper suitable. Now unpack those words for a moment. What, What does it mean here? Helper here is not in any way derogatory. And it doesn't describe her uh, as uh, having menial jobs or, or somehow that, you know, he's varsity, but she's JV. You know, this is not what's, what's being spoken of here. The word helper in the Bible is used by God himself to speak of himself in coming to the aid of his people. The psalmist says in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes and I look to the heavens. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord 
the maker of heaven and earth. It's a picture of God coming to the aid and the rescue of his people. And if anything, friends, it doesn't speak in any way here of her inferiority, but of his inadequacy without her. What an awesome responsibility she has, friends, in his life. I love the story of a man named Thomas Wheeler, who was the CEO of the Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance Company. He tells the story on himself. One day he was out driving with his wife, and they were on a highway, and they needed gas. And so he just found the next exit, and he pulled off the road. He went to some dumpy gas station with you know one pump. But it was back in the days of service stations, and so he got out. And there was a lone attendant there, and he went for a little stroll, asking the man to fill up his car and check his oil. And when he returns to the car, he notices that the attendant and his wife were engaged in an animated conversation. And so he gets back in the car, and and she gets back in, and he says to her, you know, I noticed you were having a good conversation. And and, and the man had said to him, said to the wife uh, as they were departing, "It it was great talking to you. And so Wheeler asked his wife if she knew the man. And she replied, well, yes, she did. In fact, they had they'd gone to high school together and they had dated steady for a year. Boy, you were lucky I came along, bragged Wheeler. If you had married him, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant instead of the wife of a chief executive officer. My dear, she replied. If I'd married him, he'd be the chief executive officer, and you'd be the gas station attendant. (laughs) Oh, friends, helper here does not mean inferiority, but that he needs the help. And she is the instrument of God's aid to him. And she is a helper. That's, that's, That's her role, and it is filled with great dignity, friends. She is a helper suitable or fit. What does that mean? It means she she corresponds to him. She's made to fit him perfectly. She's custom made, custom built. She's like him and yet distinct and different from him. She corresponds to him. She compliments him. And I don't mean she's always throwing compliments in his direction. But what a glorious gift that man and wife are the same and yet not the same. And God then brings her to the man. Like a father walking his own daughter down the aisle, he brings Eve to Adam to be married. And Adam is absolutely beside himself with joy and amazement and wonder. It's fun as a preacher and pastor to get to do weddings. When Jesse Charles, the former uh, grad student and assistant soccer coach at JBU, got married to Shanoa Barker, a JBU student and graduate in March, I got to officiate their wedding. And uh, it was, you know, Jesse was absolutely undone at his wedding. at, at the bride's entrance, I, I, I always look to see the bride coming in, and then I look at the man's face to see the, the giant grin or whatever's going on with him. With Jesse, I heard before I saw what was going on with him. The sound of him with these deep, powerful, heaving 
chest filling breaths, inhaling and exhaling with such strength. He sounded, he sounded like what I can only imagine a championship horse sounds like in the victory circle immediately after the run. I mean, he could not contain his emotions. He, he was doing everything he could to stand there. And he was huffing and puffing. It was glorious. It was amazing. And he was like Adam, who took one look at Eve in all her glory and said, this at last. And I was going to sing that, I almost did it. You know that song, at last? There's a line in it, right? I don't even know what it is. Uh, Oh, it's a great moment. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's... He's just absolutely overwhelmed and he's thrilled. And these are the first recorded words of human speaking in the Bible and it's poetry. And no, this doesn't mean every husband is required to burst into song when his wife enters the room. But maybe you ought to try it sometime. What she is, friends, is a complimentary companion for him. And she is a help for him. In what? Well, certainly a companion in life lived before the face of God. A companionship in enjoying God and his gifts. That is a very different view from one that's given by the Roman Catholic Church historically about marriage. Following one of the great fathers of the faith that we admire in many ways, Augustine, as well as Jerome, who, who did not think that, that God bringing male and female together was really basically for companionship, but rather for procreation, fundamentally. He thought if, if marriage was fundamentally about companionship, God would have brought two men together. Because he had such a view of the sexes and their interactions that he didn't think men and women could really relate well as friends. And, and sadly, the church began to buy into that view of marriage. And it was Calvin and the Reformers and the Puritans after them who vigorously opposed the idea that somehow marriage was second best or that celibacy was really the best model and that it was a higher and more holy thing to live single all your life. And that marriage really was given chiefly so people could procreate and then raise legitimate children. Marriage... Calvin and the Reformers said, no, following Genesis 2 is is for companionship, for life, before the face of God. Now, certainly, she is to be a help to him in having dominion. It was given to male and female in Genesis 1 to rule the earth and subdue it and to govern. And they are to do that together, to be a mutual help to one another. And certainly, yes, of course, she is to be a help to him in the calling to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth with image bearers and She can't do that all on her own, and he can't do that all on his own. They need one another. And and so procreation and parenting, as God gives us children, is part of what they were to help one another in. But chiefly, friends, look at the context. Go back to verse 15 through 17. When God says it was not good for the man to be alone, what had he just said to the man? He had just said, I will be your father and you will be my son. Come live in the world that I've given you and live under my wisdom and in my house. And do what I tell you to do as a child who loves his father. 
He had given him life. He would given him himself. He would given Adam uh, the command to serve and to obey. To listen to the voice of his father. And Eve then is made not to be Adam's slave in any way, but to help him serve God. And let me apply that. Marriage is designed to be a relationship of three, not two. Three, a man and his wife and their God. That's three. It's not designed to be attempted without God involved. God made Eve to help Adam to know and enjoy and serve and obey God. Therefore, if you're single... Marry someone who encourages you spiritually and marry them to be an encouragement to them spiritually. Before you get married, ask yourself, do I respect this person's walk with the Lord? And do I want to help them walk with the Lord? Is that my aim in getting married to them? And ask yourself, am I attracted to their spiritual qualities? Or is physical appearance and attraction more important to me than even the fruit of the Holy Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? And why is that if that is the case? When outwardly we are all wasting away and you're just going to journey together towards your body falling apart and being buried in a grave. Should not the spiritual qualities matter more to us and if we are married friends then let us help each other spiritually as we say in the wedding service and it is a constant rebuke to me as I say it every time husband and wife are to cherish a mutual esteem and love to bear with each other's infirmities and weaknesses to comfort each other in sickness trouble and sorrow in honesty and industry to provide for each other and for their household in temporal things and to pray for and encourage one another in the things which pertain to God and to live together as the heirs of the grace of life. This is what marriage is for, to help one another live before the face of God. So finally, we might ask this question. What is marriage? Well, God defines it for us. Moses sums it up in verses 24 and 25. Therefore, he says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want you to see four or five things about marriage that this text tells us. It says, the provision of Eve to Adam is the foundation of all marriage. This verse is picked up again and again in the New Testament by Jesus when he engages with people about the issue of divorce and remarriage. He goes back to the beginning. And it's picked up by Paul in a variety of places. In Ephesians 5, when Paul talks about and explains how a husband is to love his Christ, love his, his wife as Christ loves the church, he then quotes Genesis 2 right here. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, and this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what is marriage? It's designed to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, and it is designed to be patterned after that relationship. 
a writer named Gage in trying to describe the deeper meaning, tried to show the parallels between Adam and Jesus in this regard. Whatever you make of his exegesis, the, his, his explanation of the text, the, the theology is beautiful. He says, and he points out that the first Adam was innocent, was made to sleep, was then wounded, something taken from him so that his bride might be formed. And in a parallel fashion, Christ, the last Adam, comes. And he's also innocent and has his own side wounded. And he enters the sleep of death for the express purpose of redeeming for himself a bride, the church. We have to acknowledge that marriage is in massive trouble today. Not just the fact that marriages are falling apart everywhere we turn and divorce rates have skyrocketed. And not also just that the laws that protected marriage and that discouraged divorce have disappeared from our culture. So that people could just walk up and say, I want out. And they're allowed to get out. But also, of course, that new definitions of marriage are being embraced widely in our culture. And we should care about that. We should care about that because marriage is an institution God designed and its design is for our blessing and it's designed, it's designed to reflect the union of Jesus and his church. The husband is to play the role of Jesus and give himself for her. And the wife is to play the role of the church and in love, respect and honor her own husband. So, that's the first thing, friends, what marriage is. Marriage also involves a man leaving his parents and starting with his wife a new family. It's about a new priority. No longer is the man under the thumb, as it were, of his own parents with first priority given to that relationship. But now they are to begin to look after one another. And so the wise father who answered the midnight phone call of his newly married daughter had it right when she, in tears, you know, after a week of marriage, called and said, Daddy, I want to come home. And he wisely said, Honey, you are home. It's a new home. You leave mom and dad. And you cleave to one another. You hold fast to one another. You unite And you are bound to one another and you are to cling to one another as long as we both shall live. And marriage is also the most intimate relationship. The two become one flesh. And that is, friends, about more than sex, certainly. But not less than that. And a husband and wife are to share their money and their house and their body and their bed. And in the first marriage we see what it is and what is not to be considered a legitimate expression of human sexuality. And we have to say it, friend. Male and female are to unite in lifelong, mutually committed, monogamous relationship. And in that context, they are to enjoy the righteous satisfaction of the desire and the pleasures of procreation. And it is painfully obvious from the text That from the beginning, God's plan and purpose for the expression of our sexuality is heterosexuality. And it is not, dear friends, homophobic to say that. It is not irrational fear 
or bigotry or lack of love or lack of compassion or lack of understanding to say this, nor can it be characterized as hate, hate speech and criminalized as if the Bible is advocating violence or the unjust persecution of people who believe differently. It is not. Nor is this even about the hypothetical question of whether two men or two women could really love each other and be faithful to each each other. That is not the main issue. The main issue isn't whether two men or two women can be as faithful to each other as a man and a woman in marriage. The issue is whether two men or two women or some arrangement of three or more can form some form of union and still be faithful to their creator who made them and designed marriage between one man and one woman for their blessing and to be a reflection of the love of Jesus for his bride, the bridegroom, for his wife. That's what marriage is, friends. And marriage, we see finally, is the most vulnerable human relationship. They were naked and there was no shame. They were at perfect ease with one another and comfortable with one another. No one felt dirty and no one had a past that grieved, injured the conscience, or made them feel shame. And none of that was there, friends, because there was no sin in the garden when they got married. That comes later. This whole discussion of marriage, not to mention being married itself, to close, will expose your idolatry. It will expose your idolatry. Idolatry is the love of the creature more than the creator. And we are constantly tempted to either the idolatry of self self-love or the idolatry of him or her right the idolatry of self thinks i don't need anyone else and i won't be tied down by anyone else they'll just get in the way of me doing what i want to do and that idolatry friends is easily made worse by a lifetime of relational isolation run from marriage and you may easily imprison yourself in an island of me Marriage doesn't fix that love of self. It exposes it. Let that exposure, and if you are married, you know it. Let that exposure of your selfishness lead you to repentance and faith in Jesus for his grace and for the help to be loving to your spouse. But we're also, friends, tempted to the idolatry of him, her, I can't live without them, we say. I need them more than life itself. I need them more than God himself, we think in our hearts. And that idolatry is sure to disappoint you, friends, because nobody but Jesus can be Jesus for you. And when you marry them and you discover that they can't be Jesus to you, your anger and disappointment at them for failing you in that is likely to hurt them And destroy your relationship as you despise and punish them for not being enough for you. 
Marriage exposes that idolatry, that idolatrous love of a spouse that expects them to be what only Jesus can be. Let that exposure, that of that warped neediness, lead you to repentance and faith in Jesus for grace and help to trust God so that you can love them, not in order to be loved by them because you have found in Jesus your all in all and have been loved by him in order to love them. So whatever our failures, friends, whatever sin, shame, fear, idolatry we have, remember this, that Jesus bore our shame upon the cross and he took it away. And he is not ashamed to be called our elder brother. And Jesus loves idolaters and gave himself for them. He found his church in its filth of idolatry. And he loved her, cleansed her, and will one day present her in glory without spot or blemish, radiant before the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, we we bow and we bless you and we praise you. And Jesus, we thank you. Help us to delight in you and in your plan. And I pray that you would calm our fears and provide for our needs. and Forgive our sins. And help us to love as we have been loved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.